hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I am your genial host Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. Buenas noches. Yes, Craig, unfortunately, still on the land without internet, so we're trying to get him back. We're trying to recover him, but so far, no luck. So, yes, you're stuck with us as we plough our way through what we have done and seen so far this month. So, just the four to get through, but that's no reason why we shouldn't just crack straight on in uh, with Lucknow Central. And Drew, you are going to tell us about that under pain of death. This seems an extreme threat. <laughs> I was entirely ready to volunteer the information, but... I'm trying to ramp up the stakes. The only problem is I've nowhere left to go after this. Just slightly frightened now. You should be. Maybe I'll just talk about this film and then think about improving my personal security later on. (laughs) Kishen Garotra, Farhan Akhtar, is a small town man who dreams big. He wants to create his own band and be a musical star. Certainly, he has the musical talent but he feels he is punished for daring to dream so high when he is wrongfully convicted of the death of a high-ranking Indian civil servant and is sentenced to life in prison. Tough break, but things get even worse when the murder victim's family successfully appeals against his sentence and Kishin is sent to the maximum security Lucknow Central Prison to await execution. Before his transfer, though, Kishin crosses paths with Gayatri Kashyap, Diana Pente, a prison's... Administrator? Reformer? Charity worker? Uh, Maybe I missed something at the beginning, but I'll be honest, I have no idea what this woman's job is. Um, Or was, as it does seem to change at some point. (laughs) Are you any wiser, Scott? It seemed as though she was starting off as some sort of prison inspector, but then it somehow transformed into public relations? Maybe? I'm not sure. (laughs) And then I read a a review somewhere, and it may have been in an Indian an English-language Indian newspaper that said she worked for an NGO. And I, really? Well, then how can she be fired and then be in the employment? Anyway, this woman <laughs> works in something to do with prisons. <laughs> and Kishin meets this her. This woman is there. Yes. <laughs> yes. But anyway, Gayatri has been charged by the state governor with forming a band in Lucknow Central that will compete in the annual prison band competition. And Kishin has promised to be her first volunteer and to help find other band members. This turns out to be considerably more difficult than Kishin expected, especially since his welcome to the prison consists firstly of Ronit Roy's jailer pretending to hang him and then inadvertently making an enemy of Tilak Dare, Manavij, the boss amongst the prison's population. Eventually, though, he begins to earn respect and make friends and starts to recruit band members. An interesting assortment of characters they are too. There's Deepak Dobrayo's Victor, an engineer and electrician, Gepi Gruel's Parminder Singh, who has a job in the workshop, Enamolak's Dikat, a cleaner with the permission to go anywhere within the prison, and Rajesh Sharma's Pandiche, a tailor. Almost like the group of people you might find useful if you were, say, intending to use a concert as cover for an escape. Mm. Allegedly based on a true story, the story of a prison band going viral and becoming popular, certainly, I suspect the escape and ending less so. Ranjit Tiwari's Hindi language film, from a script by the director and Asim Arora, feels almost like two films. The first is a quite dark drama, with police torture, prison brutality, and the coercion of Kishin by Tilagdare to murder his rival. In this same half of the story are attempts by Gayatri to prove Kishin's innocence, and the difficulties and idiosyncrasies of the Indian legal system. 
alongside this is a story of friendship, self-realisation and the fulfilment of one's dreams, in whichever manner that one can, accompanied by a couple of musical numbers and a few musical training montages, with attendant comedy and at times farce, while trying to outwit the canny and suspicious prison superintendent. As such, Lucknow Central ends up like something of a cut and shut between the Shawshank Redemption and Jailhouse Rock, and though it suffers from the melding of two such different takes in prison, it doesn't do so to quite the extent that you might expect. While the tonal shifts can be jarring, the ending is marred by sentimentality and the blatant eBay advert halfway through nearly breaks the film's momentum, it builds up enough goodwill, thanks in large part to the supporting cast, for those sins to be largely forgiven and for it, in the end, to be a decently entertaining film. It's possible that, were this an English language film, that I might not be so forgiving, and that the relative novelty of seeing such a story set in Uttar Pradesh in India, and not the UK or USA, means it gets a pass for some of its flaws where otherwise it might not. But even if that is the case, is set in Uttar Pradesh, and the unfamiliar setting alone is interesting. While, unlike another Indian film, Dangle, that we talked about a few months back, the music doesn't do a great deal for me, as an aside, I have seen this described as a musical in a few places. Ignore this, as a film about a band that sees them perform two songs does not a musical make. The cheesy glitz of the band competition has some appeal, and the improvised performance that gives the band fame is genuinely entertaining. I also find quiet amusement in the fact that, while following the subtitles, I listen to the dialogue in Indian films to see if I can distinguish words and sounds, and I'm constantly discombobulated by the apparently random insertion of various <laughs> English words and phrases into the middle of Hindi sentences. Yeah, the, the occasional entire sentence in English just to throw you off entirely, and then back <laughs> in Hindi. So strange. And I know why the fact that it's English in particular is a colonial issue, but I, I understand why so many Indians speak English, is that India has about 40 languages, <laughs> and English is the one language in which people from all over the country have a good chance of making themselves understood in, but yeah. it's so strange that it just is Hindi, Hindi, English word Hindi, English phrase Hindi, Hindi, English sentence, English sentence, Hindi word. <laughs> a mild recommendation for me, but worth checking out for something a little different. Yeah, I, I enjoyed Lucknow Central for the most part, and I have no major complaints about it. It's, as you kind of touched on, it's there's a strange amount of tonal whiplash. Um, I kind of had this pegged on the first, you know, five to ten minutes. Like, oh, okay, you're you're a happy-go-lucky pop idol kind of thing going on. Yes, you know? that's what it feels like from the beginning, doesn't yes. it? And then all of a sudden, boom! Police torture. It's like, oh, that's that's quite brutal. So this has all got a bit darkest timeline. All of a sudden, that doesn't really affect my enjoyment of the film somehow. But it it seems like it should. It seems <laughs> yes. like it's something that should bother me, but I, I guess it just doesn't. Whether this is, as we mentioned on previous podcasts, I don't have that much experience with Indian cinema. Is this common? Is this the sort of thing that just happens? Because it, it kind of went that way a few places in Dangle as well, so I'm not sure if this is just, this is, just comes with the territory or if it's endemic to this film. Um, but at any rate, it didn't really bother me and it kept me entertained quite well throughout. Farhan Actor is quite a a watchable lead character and it kind of mm-hmm. hinges off him quite well and uh, he managed to keep my engagement all the way throughout it. Um, some very interesting supporting roles that I say the, the jailer, again, a little bit of whiplash because he's, he's introduced to doing that um, terrifying, you know, fake 
fake hanging, yeah, yes, hanging right. scene. Yeah, but then after that, he just seems like competent and suspicious, as he should be. Um, as though it was like like a different character all of a sudden. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's, there's there's some elements in here that don't quite tie together when you stop to think about it. But yeah, the film itself I enjoyed quite quite a lot, and yeah, kept my interest all the way through. It's two hours and a bit. It's um, it's almost two and a half hours actually, but it. Okay. I would say that it didn't particularly feel quite so long. No, um, bombed along at a good old pace for me. I didn't feel like it was dragging at any point, so that's no. a that's a benefit to it. This has been a, a drum I've been beating for a long time, but particularly in recent episodes, I've noticed that unnecessarily long running times have been a real bugbear of mine. Yeah. And so I was a little concerned about this because it, even just from what I read about it before watching it, it seemed it's a fairly light premise. And hmm. I think this is largely anecdotal, but the impression I get is that Indian films tend to be quite long. Hmm. It's not uncommon for an Indian film to run two and a half, three hours easily. But both this and Dangle are films that are approaching, I think Dangle's even just slightly over two and a half hours, and it feels objectively like there ought not to be enough material in there to cover that time. (laughs) But both of them, this and Dangle, bomb along quite happily and the time just passes without noticing it. Just Uh, just checking another film that was on my list, uh, Toilet, (laughs) a film about toilets. Um, India's 155 minutes, so yeah, it's, it just seems to be endemic. <laughs> yes, I think the the other Indian film we covered recently, Hotel Salvation, which was only about 90 minutes, is very much the exception rather than the rule. <laughs> but the point being, it's not an issue. It, it, I was a bit concerned, particularly as even just from the beginning, like you say, Scott, it felt like it had I was going some down some sort of pop idol road, something yeah. like X Factor road, and I'm like, oh. Two and a half hours of that, that could be a stretch. It's like, but, no, but there's a very sudden hard right. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> um, the fact that that keeps you so off kilter because of that very strange <laughs> change in tone is what makes the time pass more quickly. I don't know, but it does pass quickly and uh, it's an enjoyable time to have. Because yeah, the, the side characters are really quite interesting and quite distinctive. Yeah. I think maybe the only thing that I would do, again, possibly too much of him would have the tone too much the other way but the um do you like Dari, the villain yeah that guy i don't know if it's because of his wonderful mustache but <laughs> he just looks evil uh, person, yeah. <laughs> yeah and i would have liked to have seen more of him but uh, beyond that yes it's it's an interesting film quite entertaining definitely funny in parts so definitely something worth checking out yeah solidly enjoyable it's like a like a, a good old three and a half to four out of five uh definitely well worth taking a look at i think absolutely so, we're going to move on from this strangely toned Indian film to something that would make you think it's meant to be spooky, Scott. A ghost story. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> we'll see. Um, right, to be fair, I knew what I was getting into with this film, um, so I'm not going to be too angry with the ghost story. Um, Are you leaving that to me? Good, good. Yes. Uh, Casey Affleck's C and Rooney Mara's M appear to be a happy enough couple in their new home, but tragedy visits them when C is killed in a car crash. Rather than step into the light, however, C chooses to remain on this earth as a ghost and watch over his widow. A ghost, in this case, in the lazy Halloween costume sense, (laughs) as in a white bedsheet draped over him with two eyes drawn in the felt-tip pens kind of deal. C watches, dispassionately, probably, as M struggles to come to terms with, with her loss and eats a pie. Then she moves out and a charming young family move in, and the exuberance of the kids presumably leading C to start poltergeisting to scare them off. 
more people move in and we are treated to some good <laughs> ranting about time diminishing all that, if studied for a few years, could be described as sophomoric. Then the house is demolished and time repeats itself and the film ends. Cue scratching of heads, mild befuddlement, and an almost immediate filing of this into your brain's forget-me cue. The IMDb summary describes David Lowry's film Thust in this singular exploration of legacy, love, loss and the enormity of existence. A recently deceased white-seated ghost returns to his suburban home to try to reconnect with his bereft wife. If you're able to read any of that into this film, as many <laughs> Breathless reviews have, then more power to you. I applaud your irrational attempts to impose meaning on garbage. For us schmucks out here in reality land, this is a unique combination of the extreme boredom and the laughable. We're supposed to find C's besheeted form, I gather, has an expression of yearning, of a dehumanised expression of raw emotion, and instead, there's not one time he didn't creep up at the edge of the frame where the out-and-out <laughs> stupidity of the concept didn't just make me laugh. Uh, the swelling soundtrack clumsily indicates emotions, while the muted, washed-out visuals compete with the narrative for the dullest thing in the film. Now, I've seen some very slow-burning, glacially-paced arthouse films that I've found quite affecting, such as With a Girl of Black Soil, but there's no connection for me at all in a ghost story, and it's really hard to take a film seriously when over 5% of the film's running time is devoted to watching someone eat a pie. I wondered if you were going to mention that. Might be a flan, hard to say, such is the enigma of the film. It, it got off to a really bad start with me, just for a couple of relatively trivial things. I mean, what I assume was an attempt to avoid, like, product placement concerns. Um, you know, Casey Affleck's is producing a, a, a musical track at some point, so he's sitting with his headphones on, but, you know, they're, they're quite clearly M Sony MDR7506s. They're, <laughs> the, the, they're relatively well-known if you know anything about headphones, because they're, mm -hmm. like, major studio ones. And This is like recognising um, a sure microphone or something, isn't it? It's, yeah. You know it when you see it. Distinctive look. Yes, and, you know, I guess I'm biased because it's what I'm using right now. But uh, <laughs> you know, so one like one like the left hand side has Sony gaffer taped over on it, but it says Sony on the other side as well, and they've not gaffer taped that one up. And it's just, what's the point of that? Um, rather more um, importantly, uh, or less obscurely, perhaps there just seems to be no plausible scenario where C would be able to engineer a fatal car crash on the road that you're shown that he's on if he'd tried. Little. Yes. I mean, it's practically in his driveway, <laughs> and it just it's just annoying. You, you didn't even need to show it. You could run something off. I don't know. Um, so there's a couple of minor points really early on that just made me go, "What?" And when you're already <laughs> doing that before you've introduced Casey Affleck in a bedsheet, um, it, it just asks a lot of its audience for very little in return. But I had sort of expected this. Uh, I was hoping for the best, but it delivered the worst, or at least the most boring. Um, so, I think if you want film to read in a more academical sense, then there's probably something you could start digging, digging into here. But yeah, for anyone else, no. Just no. Mm. No. <laughs> yes, I had no expectations of this because I hadn't heard of this until you said... I've watched this film, or I've got this film, I'm going to watch it for the podcast. Well, I will do the same then, because I'm a fool like that sometimes, but at least we can talk about it. <laughs> and I watched it. And to be honest, for a 90-minute film, it's possibly the only 90-minute film I've ever had to watch in shifts. <laughs> because I could not 
cope with it in one go because I just wanted everything to end. Uh, uh, because when uh, you mentioned Scott too about the five percent of the running time being devoted to someone eating a pie, I think it's important to our listeners to understand that is not in any way, shape, or form hyperbole. I timed it and everything. <laughs> I was kind of watching that scene slack, Jordan. Really? Because it just went on and on and on, and like. But didn't you get the anguish that she was conveying <laughs> through pie eating? No, I just thought. I can't. Oh, I just, right, but that's apparently what it was. <laughs> no, but uh, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, Rini Mara's really skinny. So presumably she doesn't eat much. Therefore, her stomach's going to fill really quickly. That woman's going to be physically ill. Um, I really hope she didn't have to do more than one take because when she runs to the toilet to throw up, I'm like, that may actually be genuine. I'm not convinced that's part of the, the role because it spends. What is that? It's like almost 10 minutes, right? Um, it's not quite that bad, but it's yeah, it's getting there. I think it was six or seven. So literally six or seven minutes of watching a woman sitting on the floor eating a pie. And that was, that was just the time to eat the pie. I wasn't counting the ancillary moving the pie from one table to another, which uh, now I come and think about it is such an integral part of the performance <laughs> that, yeah, it is closer to 10 minutes when you yes. count all pie-related activity. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, no dialogue here. Nothing happening. It's not acting because she's a woman eating a pie. And I'd say all I can think about is, okay, if she said, even in this one take, that amount of pie would make me sick. I'm a big man. This skinny woman, she's going to be physically, genuinely sick. What are you doing? Please don't um, let her have done another take because that's just cruel. Um, <laughs> really stupid method acting. And that's just where... Oh, there are so many problems with it. this horrendously oppressive score, hmm. which I don't know if you thought it was meant to be sort of really important or something. I just came across as pretentious and terrible. And I don't care for meta reviews and things. But occasionally I'll see them and I just, and it kind of, it tickles me how <laughs> divergent from my opinion some people's can yeah. be. And the Rotten Tomato scores for this are 90% positive. Uh, I don't Really? It's good when you find the odd film where you look at it and think, I am being gaslighted here. There's no <laughs> way this is yes, There's no way they believe this. It's impossible because this film is a steaming turd. There's nothing in this film that goes... I mean, I thought The Revenant was bad for a film that didn't actually have any performances in it. It at least had a bear. This one's got a pie. <laughs> yeah, um, there's literally no performance because I'm quite certain that is Casey Affleck under that sheet, at least for 95% of the time. Oh, yeah. He seems like the type of actor who would actually do that, just stand in the sheet and, and think that he's getting performance by standing in a sheet. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, I mean, there's a lot, in a lot of roles and a lot of actors can do a lot of things in an unspoken way. First of all, there generally needs to be some speaking, um, of which there was almost none in this film. And yeah, well, um, what would the what would the, the the speech be? It's like I am going to eat a pie. Yeah. Nom nom nom. I have eaten a pie. Oh no, it's. Let me just focus on that scene. There's all the other scenes too. It's like Rooney Mara. You see, there's a there's a really extended sequence of her driving away from the house, and she's not acting, but then she's concentrating on driving, and that's all you see in her face. <laughs> and it just doesn't doesn't stop. It goes on for three or four minutes, I think. And this film is full of those things. But it gives you all that time to think. Yeah. Um, to, to think, Drew, about how stupid this film is. <laughs> all these reviews saying that it's some sort of meditation on death and loss and things. It's not. It's really not. Nothing happens. 
It's got this horribly impressive score and nothing happens and there's a ghost. And there are there are moments too, it's like, as you mentioned, when the this young family moves in, we understand that time has moved on when this ghost is still trapped in this place. Okay. But then there's I assume we're supposed to feel some sort of sympathy for Casey Affleck ghost, but then he's just an absolute dick to some kids. So, no, I don't like him. I, I don't care for this ghost. He's a bad ghost. Go away. Casper, he is not. Uh, and I don't understand what this film thought it was saying or why it thought it needed this really bizarre uh, frame of looking like a... I don't guess maybe like a 35mm camera shape or something like that yeah sort of 4-3 um, ratio sort of yeah but with rounded corners yeah. I don't know, that that adds nothing to the film it doesn't frame it interestingly it's i mean i wasn't annoyed by it because i was in as much as <laughs> if it was six, the film's 69 problems. it wasn't going to make any difference you know yeah. still nothing <laughs> happening inside of that frame but i was like well i mean you've chosen that very very distinctive frame for a reason I have no idea what it is because it doesn't make any difference. Nothing is happening. <laughs> I think it's to try and emulate the feeling of the film being filmed on an, a smartphone but in like portrait ratio so that when they've tried to show it widescreen it's only been able to do the full <laughs> or, I think that's what um, it was going for. So it's a meditation on yes. um, smartphone films, probably. What I will say is that the first... I, I stopped watching it in the first shift a little after the extended pie sequence because I genuinely couldn't carry on. Um, I wasn't even... <laughs> just just to reiterate, we are talking about a film with an extended pie sequence and that's got <laughs> to be a, a first, surely. <laughs> it's the first one that I can think of. First and only, Scott, yes. Um, and here's the thing too. This film is only 90 minutes long. 90 minutes and I had to watch it in shifts because I could not sit through this. Hmm. I will say that I... I was going to say enjoyed it more. That's wrong. I disenjoyed it less. <laughs> it's going to invent the word. I disenjoyed it less. Very much in the second um, half. Perhaps because the extended pie sequence was behind me and I felt I'd gotten over some sort of hump. Yeah. <laughs> or perhaps just because at that, by that point I knew what I was in for. And I just wanted to get to the end so I knew that I'd seen it. Um, because I, in my entire life, I genuinely believe there's only one film I've never made it to the end of that I've started for reasons of trivia that was the was casino royale you know the crap one with david niven and woody allen after which i took out of the dvd player after 13 minutes and sent back to love film it's like yes i've got the full flavor of this thank you (laughs) but other than that one film in my entire life i have never not made it the end of a film i've started so i felt i needed to get to the end of this (laughs) but oh crikey was that a struggle it's the longest 90 minutes i've ever spent i think Hmm. Uh, but really I can sum up my thoughts on this film um, by ignore everything I've said, right? And I'll give you one sentence. Pie. Oh, no. Beyond beyond that. Beyond this pie? Is f- There's beyond things pie. beyond pie? Wow. This, this has opened my eyes. This is a film in which a ghost commits suicide. <laughs> this is possibly the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so Does that make him some sort of extra concentrated ghost? <laughs> Who can say? Does it become Ghosty Plus? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, there are good reasons to to like Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara for their acting in plenty of other films. And you might be tempted by that. That That's interesting. But don't. Don't, don't do it to yourself. Avoid <laughs> this film. It is a bad film. It is the worst of films. 
If anyone out there has already seen this and liked it, tell us why. <laughs> give give uh, us some and, idea of what's wrong with you and we'll And if you need help, um, we'll listen and we'll, we'll get in contact with <laughs> the authorities if needs be, you know. And we're here for you. Yes. So, A+, plus must watch. Uh, so, just to keep the death theme going, I suppose, let's uh, move it straight onwards to the death of Stalin. And Drew, it's absolutely imperative. I mean, your life... Indeed, all of our lives depend upon you telling us about this film. So no pressure then. Keep talking or the bomb goes off. In a dystopian, totalitarian state, a fabled, all-powerful dictator has just died. While he industrialised his nation, increased the literacy of his people and made his state a global power, his subjects lived in perpetual fear. Children informed on their parents. Death squads rounded up and disposed of unwanted people, often for the most minor reasons and he was responsible for more than 20 million deaths. In the hours and days following his demise, his venal underlings scheme and plan, vying with each other in the power vacuum for the right to succeed him. Torture, rape, imprisonment, imprisonment without trial, that is, summary execution, all part of the day-to-day in this corrupt and dangerous empire. Not, one would imagine, the most obvious or fertile ground from which to grow comedy. Leave it then to Armando Iannucci, creator of the thick of it in the loop and veep, to use this setting to harvest a crop of blackly comic, deeply biting satire. The situation I outlined is, of course, not fanciful. It is not some bleak literary future, but rather is the past. The Soviet Union, in fact, in 1953, in the days following the death of Joseph Stalin. Based loosely on the graphic novel Le Mort de Staline by French duo Fabien Nouri and Thierry Roman, Iannucci's film from a screenplay by himself, David Schneider, Ian Martin, Peter Fellows, begins with a concert broadcast by Radio Moscow. After the concert is over, Paddy Considine's producer has a phone call with Stalin, played by Adrian McLaughlin, who enjoyed the music and wants a recording of the concert. Tricky that, since no recording was made. Considine closes the doors to stop the remnants of the audience leaving, drags people off of the streets and a replacement conductor out of his bed, and even bribes one of the musicians to stay, all in order to play the whole concert again. You don't say no to Stalin. <laughs> it's a delightfully absurd opening that also sets up very well the thrall in which Stalin holds the country, and the stakes. The next day, Stalin is found almost dead, lying in his office in a puddle of piss, and the Central Committee members, including Nikita Khrushchev, Steve Buscemi, Georgi Malenkov, Jeffrey Tambor, Lavrenti Beria, Simon Russell Beale, and Vyacheslav Molotov, Michael Palin, must navigate the minefields of Stalin's illness, exacerbated by the fact Stalin had all of the best doctors purged for being intellectual subversives, so only the incompetent ones remain, and, following his death, the election of a new leader. The spectacular cast of characters continue to try to gain the upper hand on their opponents, with varying degrees of success. From the scheming and competent Khrushchev and Beria, the vain buffoon Malenkov, and the feckless, faithless Molotov, whose allegiance changes as often as the wind, and who will throw anyone and everyone under the bus if it helps him to survive. Secondary characters include Stalin's perpetually inebriated son Vasily, Rupert Friend, Olga Kurilenko's Stalin-hating pianist Maria Yudina, and Jason Isaac's great turn, by way of Sheffield, as the legendary Soviet hero Marshal Zhukov. All of their various schemes and plots come to a head when the laughter conspicuously and deliberately ceases, and we see the end point of the committee's machinations. 
the first thing to say is that this film is, in many parts, funny. Very funny. But I felt deeply, deeply uncomfortable laughing at much of the death of Stalin. I've always found it a strange thing that neither Stalin nor Mao Zedong have ever been held in quite the same contempt as Adolf Hitler, despite both being responsible for more, in Mao's case vastly so, deaths than the Austrian. While nothing is off limits for comedy, though other concerns like common sense or decency ought to put a break on it at times, not everything is well served by the comedic approach. Hitler has certainly been a figure of fun before, lampooning his image is a good way of lessening his power, but I, and I'm happily to be corrected, can't think of a time when a satire centre of Hitler was mixed with the actualities of the crimes that his regime perpetrated. Things are very different in the death of Stalin, where the bickering and buffoonery of the Central Council is constantly rubbing shoulders with the death squads, political cleansing, torture and joyful boasts about multiple rapes. On occasion it works, either through a joke breaking the tension and bringing a welcome sense of relief, or that juxtaposition of evil with vanity, ambition and incompetency. The performances are almost uniformly excellent. A notable exception is Andrea Riseborough as Svetlana, Stalin's daughter, whose somewhat underwhelming performance is compounded by the fact that her character is neither interesting nor funny enough. Indeed, female characters, of which there are only a smattering, don't get much of a look in here at all. Anyone familiar with the Veep and the Thick of It will know that Iannucci has created some stonking female characters, so I suspect this is more a result of the period than the writing. But the men, Buscemi, Palin, Isaac, Tambor et al, are well served, and they all generate some deep laughs. Not so Simon Russell Beale though. Very little of what Beale says is funny. Not that he's bad. Indeed, he's quite the opposite. His performance as deputy chairman and head of the secret police Laventry Beria is good. Too good. His is genuinely one of the most sinister performances that I've ever seen in a film. And even now, several weeks removed, he still gives me the heebie-jeebies. It's sharply written, expertly acted and often very funny. But Iannucci's brand of humour and satire works very much better when the weapons are words and the knives in the back are only of the metaphorical variety. Poking fun at the bickering politicians in Whitehall and on Capitol Hill is fine, but it begins to feel very, very uncomfortable and incongruous when these petty, self-interested squabbles are put beside death, and death in such vast amounts. Attempts at one-upmanship and being seen to be decisive and in control are robbed of much of their potential for humour when, for instance, a spat over allowing the trains to start re-entering Moscow leads directly to the death of 1,500 civilians. I recommend The Death of Stalin, but it's a recommendation with caveats, and anyone considering watching it really should be aware of the issues that I've mentioned. But, being made duly aware, and if you've enjoyed any of Iannucci's other works, then I'd be greatly surprised to find that you didn't like The Death of Stalin. Well, it's an interesting point you're bringing up with the juxtaposition of the kind of real immediacy of the death and that, because if you think about it, that's going all the way through in the loop. It's not so immediately apparent, and it's not mixed in with actual things. But I mean, that whole thing is the march to the Iraq War and all the all the havoc that that brought onto us. In, in, no, it feels somewhat more forms. detached from that. Yeah, I mean, it it's it does feel more detached in that film, but you know, it's it's the same thing. It's but it's, I would, would assume that this has been done deliberately by Hinucci. This is you know trying to bring it more to the fore. There has been that current in in some of his work before. Um, it didn't really bother me all that much when watching it but it certainly just on on a kind of 
existential level. It, it did, however, bother me in the fact that it sort of made things obviously much less funny. It was strange coming out of this film because I hold the energy in such high regard that I was only, I only really really liked this film, and that's a bit of a disappointment um, that it wasn't you know immediately the best film I've seen this year. But I I largely echo everything that you're saying there, so I won't spend too much time going over it. Simon Russell Beale's performance is amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's like he's like the. You know, at some points you could almost imagine him being sort of avuncular, but then he's avuncular in the most evil, sinister way possible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I really, when I said his is one of the most sinister performances I've ever seen, that there's not yeah. a hint of exaggeration there. It, no. He's genuinely frightening. Yeah. Like, I, I would not want to get on the wrong side of him. Yeah. Um, hugely solid cast. There's something strange about the way the accents are used, which uh, somehow works even when they're saying the most depraved things the fact that it's somehow been delivered by a russian but in a yorkshire accent sort of defines it a little bit um so yeah most of that works and yes it's a really good cast and they all kind of play off each other really well jeffrey tambor and buscemi and all that all that all really do uh, some solid work in here and some of the situations are you know, trivial to the point of ridiculous. So I have heard some people complain that this is not being, you know, a hundred percent historically accurate. To which I answer, really? <laughs> yeah. You don't so, say. That's, how how good of you to notice? Thank thank you for that. Yes. Um, I mean, a satire based on a graphic novel, yeah. um, isn't historically accurate to what happened um, in Russia in the nineteen fifties yeah. when nobody knows exactly what happened behind closed doors anyway. Yes. That's, that's useful insight. Thank you very much. I mean, I, mean, I, I was always under the impression that F- Gorgi Zukov spoke in a Yorkshire accent, but now you've informed me that this is not a historical document, I'll make sure to, to recalibrate that expectation in my mind from the future. Thanks, you goddamn killjoys. <laughs> um, yeah, as I say, not much else to add to it. I, I really enjoyed this. I found it uh, very good. It's a very enjoyable film, and it's tough, perhaps, to give it the same sort of blanket recommendation that you could give to something like in the loop, mm-hmm. uh, where the only really offensive thing is the language, uh, whereas this is the the language and the actions. <laughs> Although, I'm um, talking of language, I mean, in the loop was full of of great lines that you really wanted to use in the conversation as much as possible. The death of Stalin's great line isn't actually anything like as dirty as that. I've, I'm trying to work um, the phrase clattering fannies into every conversation <laughs> I can now. It tickled me so much. <laughs> Well worth catching up on. I assume this is now out of uh, cinemas, but uh, yeah, as soon as this becomes available on home formats, give this a look in if you haven't done so already. Indeed. So then, Scott, Hammer of the Gods and people coming from the land of ice and snow and such sort like... They come, Thor. they come from a land down under. No, that's, that's <laughs> meant to work, isn't it? Thor Ragnarok. It's, it's rare that a series gets better as the number of instalments goes up, but there's a solid case for this happening with the Thor films. Uh, Kenneth Branagh's original took a few risks with the then not fully nailed down Marvel formula, and while I appreciate the effort, it didn't quite land for me. Thor 2, Thor Harder, hewed a bit closer to type, and while I, I recall enjoying it more, I can recall almost nothing else about the film. Enter Thor Ragnarok, with Marvel's random director generator landing on the <laughs> splendid New Zealander Taika Waititi. Uh, first known to me as part of the driving force of the excellent Flight of the Concords, me and you, I think, caught his 2010 film Boy on the festival circuit um, and found it to be a delightful experience, I think, if I recall correctly, you saw it with me now. I'm not sure that I know that. I mean, 
the Taika Waititi film that I'm most familiar with is What We Do in the Shadows, which I watched again last week and it's still as funny as it ever was. Um, right, okay. I'm not sure I know. Uh, I could have sworn you was with me it was, um, back when we were doing the, the Edinburgh Festival circuit. I did notice that it got a re-release or possibly just a release um, in the cinemas just off the back of this or perhaps a little bit before it. Um, if you've not seen that one, incidentally, I heartily recommend Boy. It's a fantastic film. What We Do in the Shadows is a great idea for a comedy film, but I, I never really landed. I think I've only watched about 45 minutes of it and it kind of... It does, kind of actually, after that. about halfway, it does run out of ideas a bit. Um, I noticed yeah. that the last time. Yeah, about the halfway point, it seems to run out of ideas a bit, but it's still quite funny. Sort of a, a mockumentary about vampires living in Wellington. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a tremendous idea, and there's parts of it that were kind of that were really good, but I think overall made for a better trailer than, than a film. I've not yet caught up with uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, but uh, which is one of the Netflix specials, which has been very well regarded. Uh, I will definitely get to that at some point. Yes, but... I've been kind of get um, catch up with that too. For the same reason, it's, it seems to have been particularly well regarded. Yes, um, so I'd like to catch up with that. However, we are we're not here to discuss his career just yet, although I'm hoping time will get to that for a, a podcast episode. Uh, but to the matter at hand, Thor Ragnarok. Uh, this picks up probably from the events of the last Thor film or maybe an Avengers film or something at this point. No, I've lost um, track it, and don't care. It does pick <laughs> up Thor's on Earth. Sorry, I know the, the Thor 2 ended with Odin being imprisoned and Loki pretending to be Odin and pretending that he himself was dead. Um, I'm not quite sure how the beginning ties in with where Thor was at some other point. Yeah, and at any rate, it's not actually important because, you know, before long, Thor just shows up. Thor, of course, Chris Hemsworth, uh, figures out that Tom Hiddleston's Loki is on the throne of Asgard, pretending to be uh, Odin, Anthony Hopkins, as always. Exposing this lie, he drags his brother back to Earth to track down a dying Odin, but while they're off having a chinwag with Doctor Strange, Asgard's assaulted by Odin's firstborn daughter and goddess of death, Hela, played by Kate Blanchett, who crushes all that stand in her way, raising an army of the undead, while Idris Elba's Heimdall tries to protect as many refugees from the onslaught as possible out in the countryside. Thor and Loki's attempt at stopping her is swiftly rebuffed, and a tactical retreat goes awry when they're hurled through space to land on a strange planet, Sakaar, covered by a strange ruler, the Grand Master, an exceptional Jeff Goldblum. Thor is captured by a scavenger that turns out to be a fellow Asgardian, eventually unveiled as Valkyrie, played by Tessa Thompson, and he's forced to compete in gladiatorial games, while Loki manages to weasel his way into the Grand Master's confidence. Thor's surprised to find that his first fight is against Bruce Banner's emerald alter ego Hulk, Mark Ruffalo, and to cut the narrative a bit short, he hopes that he can convince them aforementioned people to team up, escape the planet, and destroy Hela by any means necessary. Thor has very much the potential to be Marvel's version of Superman, which is to say in boring, all-powerful dude that so outmatches his foes that there's no drama to be had. To varying degrees that happened in the previous films, but the real pleasure of his character arc is that Marvel has finally allowed Hemsworth to cut loose and try and be funny, and he succeeds greatly here. Uh, matching mm-hmm. perfectly with uh, Watiti's brand of comedy. And I suppose you'll know if this film's for you in the first five minutes as Thor faces off against the fire demon suitor, voiced by Clancy Brown, uh, with dialogue and comic timing that, you know, multi-million CG aside, could have come straight from Flight of the Concords. Uh, that bit when he's just spinning around on the chains, that cracked me up right from the beginning. Uh, Watiti does an excellent job of combining the action with the comedy, even allowing a few moments of character development. 
in this gloriously silly comedy that's somehow more meaningful than anything that happened in the apparently serious Civil War film. There's not much wrong with this film at all, really. Blanchett's shown as a great threat well enough, but it's tough to care all that much about her or her motivations. And there's a hint that the film would much rather just be having madcap adventures and moments of inventive, funny dialogue rather than have anything to do with a threat at all. Yeah, Blanchett, or Blanchett, as I I do not like Kate Blanchett at all. Ooh, sick burn! Um, Kate Blanchett um, is here very much. She's not quite as joyless as, for instance, Lee Pace in the original Guardians of the Galaxy, but she is very much another villain of the week style character in a Marvel film and they're so boring yeah likewise Carl Urban is Hela's somewhat reluctant sidekick doesn't have all that much to do but to his credit he does it as well as anyone could yes it's fun (laughs) yeah but the positives oh my the positives Um, I could simply stop at the assertion that this is the single funniest film I've seen this year, and actually I more or less will. Uh, The narrative bones of this film are fine, but the fleshy, tasty parts come from a host of terrific comic performances and the chemistry uh, between the featured and supporting cast. Hemsworth, Hiddleston, Ruffalo, Waititi in his role as uh, fellow gladiator creature Korg uh, all bounce off each other wonderfully, but Jeff Goldblum, of course, seals the show with his performance and his wonderful, wonderful costume. Given that it's been pretty successful, I don't think it's worth belabouring the point, uh, but if you are in tune with this film's sense of humour, it is obviously an absolute delight. And I think that it is now my favourite Marvel Studios film by quite a distance. If you are not on board with this film's offbeat moments, it's perhaps less essential. And also, you are a terrible monster who hates fun. (laughs) I enjoyed this incredibly. Um, I, I don't think I've smiled as much in a cinema certainly this year, a heartily enjoyable film. I, I, I laughed like a drain, uh, assuming drains are known for laughing well. Uh, this is just sort of almost directly in line with my sense of humour and it has so many just wonderful little moments and not wonderful huge moments where you know awesome things happen. It's just little throwaway lines or pointless little scenes or little flourishes like um you know when they're trying to escape in the ship and they they, they, they put birthday mode on on the <laughs> spacecraft and a little holographic jeff goes up it's my birthday <laughs> silly little moments like that just absolutely made this film for me it, it, it's as far as you can push the marvel formula without it becoming a kind of self-parody i think and it, it, it's all the better for having its limits explored Great stuff. I loved it. Yes, me too. Um, <laughs> it's a remarkable thing, and I would not have anticipated it, that I found a Marvel film funnier than an Armando Iannucci film. Yeah. <laughs> I would not have put money on that happening. Yeah, it's it's probably the funniest thing I've seen this year as well. I mean, the thing about Marvel films is that they are at their best always when they're not taking themselves seriously. Yeah. And this doesn't take, them to, to take itself seriously at all. Oh, apart from points. Basically, anything to do with Kate Blanchett's character is really boring. Yeah. Uh, it's, you've got this character who's, for some reason, vastly more powerful than Thor and Odin because of a uh, quick look over there, something shiny. <laughs> because of narrative imperative. Yes. Um, <laughs> dramatic convenience. Yes. Uh, and really, and I know I don't like her, it's maybe part of that, but she seems to be the only person in this film who doesn't get this film. Yeah. Everybody else is having so much fun and understands it perfectly. 
Yeah. And she just seems to be taking it seriously. And even there's one point with when they're in Norway with Anthony Hopkins hmm. and he seems to be in a coma in those scenes. Um, he's an old man now, so I think they really just woke him up from his nap to do those Norway scenes. But <laughs> but when he's in the Asgard scenes, when he's meant to be Loki at yeah. the beginning, uh, that's not giving out of me, it's at the beginning when they're doing the play with Matt Damon, of all people. Yeah, and um, the other Hemsworth. Yeah, um, one of Chris yeah. Hemsworth's two brothers. Yeah, um, I think, yeah. Not the, not the Hunger Games one, the other one, I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, even in those scenes, Anthony Hopkins gets it, gets this film, and the cameo, which is actually a callback to one of the after credit scenes, maybe from Civil... No, not Civil War. Thor 2, maybe. But the scene with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange, mm-hmm. really fun. And because Doctor Strange is kind of a weird character, it works better if they're going to tie in with other things that have happened. That character is yeah. a good one to do it with. And it, but strange that it's a callback to one of the uh, after a mid-credit scenes from one of the earlier films. But it's all just everybody's just having a laugh and, and gets it. Apart from Kate Blanchett, who's just like the villain of the week and she's the big bad. It's so boring. And I would exchange every single second of. Kate Blanchett's screen time for a minute more of even just like one minute more in total of Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Because Jeff Goldblum <laughs> is awesome. Really, it's it's the only real issue I have with the film, apart from Kate Blanchett, is that there's not enough Jeff Goldblum. Um, yeah. <laughs> and apparently I don't keep up with these things, apparently that character is the brother of Benicio del Toro's Grandmaster. No, he's a Grandmaster. Benicio del Toro's collector. They're brothers apparently. Um it feels like there should be some sort of web series between the two of them. <laughs> you know, five minute web shorts that could be really entertaining. Yeah. So I'm hoping they do something like that. When they're not taking themselves seriously, they're so funny. This doesn't take itself seriously at all. And I remember really, really despising the first film. And it bothered me that it didn't bother more people. Not the film itself, it's because from the start of the first film, Thor is set up as a mass murderer. Yeah. And. Did nobody else see the same film that I did? He just walked mm-hmm. into another country and killed a bunch of people, but apparently because he's this um, pretty guy and ostensibly the hero, that's okay. And like that always bothered me. And it's like, like you're having continuity with this character then, so then I'm supposed to like this guy who has done these heinous crimes, but there's now been enough good stuff with Thor that I've kind of forgiven that. Mm. Um, and by this point, Chris Hemsworth, who can act, and looks really good, and has really good comic timing, and I hate Chris Hemsworth. (laughs) (laughs) He's the worst of people. Uh, It's just so funny. I say it from the start with that scene with the um, big Satan-like demon and the spinning of the chains. So funny. There are moments where it dipped a little for me. The insistence of Marvel on using green screen for everything. I get a real ennui about that, and it's some sort of real location, natural light at some point. Hmm. Um, I mean, I know they're fantastical locations, so in Thor, maybe more than any other stuff, it doesn't matter quite so much. It's just, I find that kind of visually tiring. In this film, that's a really minor niggle, though. I would have liked to have seen more of Mark Ruffalo. Uh, I was kind of, I don't yeah. like the Hulk as a character, I don't think it's interesting. That said, pretty much every time I was getting really, really bored of the Hulk, then the Hulk would say something funny. And it kind of reset that timer. Yeah. Still, I would rather have seen more of Rack Ruffalo than um, this silly big green CGI monster thing. Yeah. Um, who, I don't know, I'm not quite sure why people like um, the Hulk so much because 
punching Loki is really entertaining because Tom Hiddleston's a terrible character. Uh, Tom Hiddleston's a terrible actor and Thor's Loki's a terrible character. But beyond that, it's like, yeah, it's a big monster. It's, they're not interesting monsters, really. But those really, I, I'm nitpicking here because it was just so much fun. It was so, so, so much fun. And even like the small bits, like Taika Waititi's character Korg had me incredible. tears. Yeah. That's the funniest side character I've seen in ages. Like, piss off, ghost. I like, talking about um, New Doug and things, which will mean something to you if you've seen it. But it's like, there's just so many wee lines there that this minor character, you maybe think it's a bit egotistical that the director's given this role to himself, but he plays it so funnily um, that I would have loved to have seen more Korg as well. Really funny. So, yeah, it's thoroughly recommended. I can see why people are having a bit of, uh, a bit weary of Marvel stuff, but I think this is probably the best Marvel film yet because it's just so damn funny. Yeah. Um, I went back and watched some of the trailers uh, yesterday, just out of interest. Um, I think for once, the UK trailers that I've seen um, have it nailed perfectly. I think the it, it kind of captures the tone of what winds up being in the film. So if you like the UK trailers, you'll, you'll definitely like this. But I think I saw some from America where basically they've kind of cut out almost every bit of humour in it and it's just action, action, action. And I can see maybe if you'd watched that and then went into this film, you might have been sold a dummy and be a bit... Maybe not quite expecting what you're going to get. So um, slight caveat, but I mean, this film has been, you know, popular enough that I don't think a, a lot of warning is required from our point of view but uh, yeah it's just terrifically enjoyable film I, I can't think why you wouldn't like it and if you do you're not allowed to play with us anymore <laughs> I'm not sure how Marvel are picking their directors they, they go some some very left field choices at times Yeah, uh, I mean Thor started with a left field choice because I think comic book movie I did not think Kenneth Branagh oh. <laughs> Although my issues with the original Thor uh, were more to do with story than necessarily the direction. So yeah. it wasn't really his issue. But I hope that um, they don't just keep changing if they give Taika Waititi another chance at something else in in the Marvel Universe. I think that could be quite fun. Yes. Uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable film. I'd, when I say that I'm getting weary of these, I have seen all of them. And that's the thing. For the most part, the Marvel films... Are generally at least competent. Yeah. Um, I mean, perhaps you could criticize them a lot of the time for being very middle of the road, but they tend to navigate a line quite well of being generally at least decently entertaining, even if they visually they can get a bit samey and maybe you want them to at least try for something a bit edgier at times. Mm-hmm. But this, this one, it feels quite distinctive. It feels unlike pretty much any other film that they've done so far. And I like that, and it's so funny. Yeah, I mean, the closest I think they've done in tone previously would be the the quirkier ends of Ant-Man yeah. that still had the sort of Ed- Edgar Wright influence on it um, before it got filed off. Um, so it's, if Ant-Man at its peak, at least as far as I was concerned, uh, is sort of comparable to this, and it's, to a degree, the Spider-Man film, what just came out there. Yeah, I mean, Spider-Man uh, was really quite funny. Not as funny as... I didn't find it as funny as a lot of other people seem to have found it, but it was still very funny. Visually, it was a bit bland, but it was entertaining, and I like Tom Holland a lot. But this one, nothing's come close to being as funny as this. Yes. Yeah, feedback from the Twitters. Uh, Due to, let's call it scheduling errors, I forgot to 
ask ask if you had any thoughts about the films we were talking about today until just as we started recording. So um, <laughs> only the one bit of feedback now, but from the ever reliable at Blake Wrights on Twitter, Perpetual Dumb Machine. Of course, one of the I'm the host uh, podcast hosts, which I recommend. Of course. While we're talking about Thor, he says that Ragnarok has a good centre of funny character moments inside a hard candy shell, but it never meshes with emotion as definitely Spider-Man Homecoming did, perhaps due to the main franchise's struggle to move past the generic big baddies, but it's the best Thor thus far. So, obviously we liked it a bit more than you did, but at least, of course, we're still on the same liking end of the spectrum. Yes, um, I wouldn't really say it particularly had any emotional moments, and and I welcome that because trying to put emotional moments in a film like that, suggest that it's trying to be serious and that's not what you wanted to do no 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 enough of that because that gives you civil war <laughs> and civil war is terrible i guess i'm thinking maybe a couple of hints with the uh, the the scenes with hopkins in norway or fake norway <laughs> whatever it was but even if you find those distasteful they're only there for at best a minute so and i i, I blame just just I'm, I'm putting the blame for this entirely on blake right so he he did this not me so uh <laughs> Or to put it another way, bored sore before, I thank the third Thor and think there's more Thor to explore. I sorely look forward to see the Thor 4 Encore Hulk War. Bad boy, dirty boy, in your bed. Yeah, so thanks very much for the feedback. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, then please do so. Uh, many ways to do that. Um, but here are just three. Um, email, podcast at Fuds on Film. Twitter, at Fuds on Film. Facebook, facebook.com slash Fuds on Film. They're the main three. There are other <laughs> ones, but I'm not going to go into them. You'll just need to guess them. Yes, we'll be back in another 10 days or so when we're talking about some films. Um, Ghibli films again, isn't it? Oh, goody. Oh, yes. You said that with, with lack of enthusiasm there, because I'm thinking, yes, Ghibli films. Wee! I'm, I'm not quite sure where your lack of enthusiasm comes from. My, so. my, my intention was very much wee, um, but I am a little tired, so maybe it's taken edge <laughs> off my wee. Uh, but yes, I did mean we in all of the positive connotations that we has. Yes, um, we're going to coming back. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to think about that. I we will be uh, coming back to do the second half of our um, Studio Ghibli coverage with Isao Takahata and all of the rest of the people who aren't Hayao Miyazaki. Yes, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that because there's a bunch of lovely films in there. Yes, so stay tuned for that. Perhaps you'd like to watch along. So yes, if if you want to watch. What's that? 12 Studio Ghibli films? Uh, not all for the next podcast. The next podcast is just the Takahashi film. So, uh, yes, why not Why not watch along with that? We'll, we'll, we'll give you the details on Twitter as to what we're doing. Yes, I will, will say, um, not to give anything away about which ones I think are particularly good, but um, if you want to watch, in particular, Grave of the Fireflies and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, you would be doing yourself a favour. So, um, yes, we'll be back to talk about those forthwith, but until such time, I thank you for your attention. I've been Scott Morris, and Drew Tavendale has survived. Hasta la próxima. This time.